Today's reading is from Philippians 1, 1 through 11. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest, and the rest of us are seated. My name is Daniel Long. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And before we get into God's Word this morning, I'd like to pray for us that we would be a people who are open um, to the voice of God in our lives. Um, And this whole idea of being people who kind of sit and listen to somebody talk for 30 minutes is such a bizarre one. Uh, And it only makes sense if we really trust that God has a word for us um, as a community. And that is what we want to pray for, that we would hear perhaps what God has to say to us, this particular body of people. So will you please pray with me? God, you're a God who desires to speak. Help us to be a people who desire to listen. May we trust that you, Father, move toward us, that you want to be in relationship with us. Help us to be receptive and open to to your initiative in our lives. And God, I pray that this morning that we would be encouraged, that we might be full of, of life and love and be empowered to truly bear witness to you in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's a question I want to ask, just that we might be able, we might ponder throughout the entire um, morning. It's a question that I feel like I've been wrestling with all week in light of the text. And the the question is like, what is the story that makes sense of my life? What is the story that makes sense of your life? And so that is a question that I think that we need to consider because we all live, we are all storied people and we all live in light of a specific story. Um, the, The journalist and nonfiction writer Joan Didion Uh, has a famous saying in which he says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think that is so true, and that is so true of a Christian people where we tell ourselves stories, or a particular story, um, in order to live. But so many times and so often we're actually living out of um, another story, or other stories that are offered to us that are more compelling, um, that that are said to be more right or more true. Um, I think a negative example of, of, what it, of or a, what it might look like to live out of a story 
in a negative way. Um, I think of the movie that came out last year called Manchester by the Sea, um, in which there's this character named Lee Chandler who's experienced some tremendous heartache in his life, at which he is responsible um, for this heartache. And he lives out of this certain story of this responsibility and what that must say about him as a human being, that he's actually emotionally paralyzed. Like, he cannot seem to function with any sort of emotion. And you see this throughout this, this film in which he's trying to interact with people, but he literally cannot emotionally connect with other human beings because of the story that he's living out of, because of the story that he's telling himself, the story that actually happened in the past but is still just a shadow over his present. And one of the central questions of the film is, will he ever be able to live beyond this story? And so as we come to today's text, I'd like to suggest that Paul reveals to us the story that he himself lives out of and the story that we, as followers of Jesus, are also called to live out of. Now, we're in a series in the book of Philippians, which started last week with Will Rogan, and he came up and preached. Um, and this, this series is going to take us through the end of the year. And the thing about Philippians, it's actually suggested that it's a friendship letter. I mean, it was, it's written to a group of his friends, and there's so much language about affection and about his, his desire of wanting to be with them, to be among his friends. And there's no wonder that this, he would be writing to his friends because the church in Philippi was one of the first Jesus communities that Paul himself um, founded. And so after some time, he is writing back to them, and he is just letting them, him, them know how he feels about them. But it's also a book, and you've probably heard this about the book of Philippians, that it's a book that's marked by joy. I think 15 times in the four chapters of Philippians, there's, there's a reference to joy or his rejoicing. That joy is one of the central aspects to this book which I think raises a question that we should be asking as we look at Philippians or as you read Philippians, which is, what are the sources of Paul's joy in Philippians? That's a really practical thing as you're reading the text that you might be considering. Okay, what are the sources of joy, of Paul's joy, in the book of Philippians? Now, last week it was suggested by Will, and here's a direct quote, that perhaps one of the sources of Paul's joy in Philippians is his confidence in the good future that God will bring about. And it's because of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. That one of the sources of Paul's joy is this confidence in the future that God will bring about, a confidence we can have because of what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. So what we, the, the text we heard read this morning was Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. So with this question in mind, I'd actually like to read again that text, and you be thinking about, okay, in this text, what might be the source of Paul's joy? So if you want to turn there, you may. Um, it's page 981 in the Blue Bibles, which are underneath your seat. Um, and I'm going to start in verse 12 and read all the way through verse 18. And this is the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. So what are the sources of Paul's joy in this passage in in Philippians? He says, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So in these, in these verses, what might be the source of Paul's joy? And it's not a trick question. Like I, I, myself, I looking at this, I'd suggest that it has to do with the advancement of the gospel or this proclamation of Christ. That Paul himself is joyful for the way that the gospel is being advanced and the, and the way Christ is being proclaimed. I mean, in verse 12, he refers to the advancement of the gospel and that it has become known. In verse 14, he's talking about pe- people being speaking the word. In verse 15, there's, there's the idea of preaching Christ. In verse 17, proclaiming Christ. And then verse 18, he ends with this rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. So this idea of Paul's joy here is fundamentally connected to the advancement of the gospel and Christ being proclaimed. And so I think it would be helpful to at least consider what these terms might mean. Because I think when, when I was reading over this, I'm like, oh yeah, gospel, got it. Christ being proclaimed, totally get it. But then I was stepping back and thinking, what might Paul mean when he uses the phrase, the gospel? And what, what might he mean by Christ being proclaimed? And so just in your mind, take a moment and think, okay, what is the gospel? How would you define, in your own terms, the gospel? Is it this idea that that our sins, our individual sins have been forgiven by God, and then we were separated from him, but now we are brought close? Um, Does it have to do with this more broad kind of cosmic idea that that God will one day bring the world to rights and that somehow we are involved in it. I mean, what, are, what is your definition of the gospel? Well, I think Paul, very helpfully, actually offers us um, in many places, but there's a summary in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there. I think it's page 961 um, in the Blue Bibles. Uh, he has a, like a brief summary of what he would consider the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'm actually going to start in verse 1. Now he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to, to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here's a summary 
of, of what Paul might suggest as the gospel. So when we're reading in Philippians, um, this idea of, of the advancement of the gospel, here's what he's talking about. And so what are some of the key things? You know, he does talk about forgiveness of our sins, but he also talks about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's this really important phrase, I think, in 1 Corinthians, and it happens twice, and it's this phrase of, in accordance with the scriptures. And so what does that mean, and what is that doing there? So this idea of being in accordance with the scriptures is that Paul, the gospel for Paul, is the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. So that Jesus is actually the climax and and full story of the story that began in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. So why is that important? Because for Paul to speak about the gospel advancing, he's not simply talking about this idea of the separation of God and then forgiveness of sins, and so then I am brought, brought into relationship with God. I'm not saying that's not part of it. I'm just saying that actually misses a lot of it, which is that for Paul, the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ fulfilling the story of Israel that you actually can't talk about the gospel, and Paul doesn't talk about the gospel without referring to the entire story of Jesus. So the gospel is this story that has begun in Israel, that finds its fulfillment in Jesus, and is still continuing on in the church, which will one day be completed when God makes all things new. I mean, so for, for Paul, the advancement of the gospel, for Christ to be proclaimed, it's for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the entire story going out, and then people, the world, finding its reference point, its own story in light of that larger story, in light of that larger narrative. So a source of joy for Paul is that the story of Jesus is being told as the true story of the whole world. And that people are getting it. And people are understanding it. Now that's really significant. Because for, for Paul, for, for the story of Jesus to be told, is for the truth to be proclaimed that Jesus himself is Lord. That Jesus himself is Lord over all. And of course, such a message would get him in prison, which is where he is when he's writing this letter, because to preach Jesus as Lord is to say that Caesar is not. And you can't say Caesar is not Lord overall and not have any punishment. But for Jesus to be Lord is the good news that this whole thing, this whole world, is under the reign of Christ. And that is good news, because it's through Jesus that God is reconciling the whole world to himself. I mean, is that not good? And that for Paul, his life is caught up in that story, and that he finds himself a part of that larger narrative of God reconciling the world to himself. And it's good news, and it brings him joy that that story is advancing, that Christ is being proclaimed. Now turn back to Philippians, because I think this is really significant, because here's what happens with the story for Paul, is that it reframes his own experience, his own perspective, it reframes his own story. 
And it does that in two ways in this, in this text. The first way, if you look at verses 12 through 14, is that it, the story of Jesus actually reframes his own experience in prison. So his own current circumstance is seen in light of the larger narrative of Jesus. Because he's in jail and he's writing this letter and he's, act- he's actually able to be joyful. And he can see that his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel in some way, which is counterintuitive. But not only that, not only has the gospel advanced where he is because the whole Praetorian Guard, or like the secret service of, of the governor uh, in, um, I think it, where, in, in, not in Philippi, but where he, in Macedonia, um, the, the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole secret service agency are actually able to hear the story of Jesus. And now the Praetorian Guard is left to wonder, wow, how does my story, it, what, how, does it make, how does the story of Jesus make sense of my own story? If, if Caesar isn't Lord, um, then that actually calls into question my whole entire life and how I make a living and what I'm doing. But Paul being imprisoned for the sake of Christ forces these sorts of questions for the Praetorian Guard. But not only that, Paul is joyful because his own imprisonment empowers people to speak the gospel, to proclaim Christ more freely. Which doesn't make any sense, and of course it wouldn't, unless the story of Jesus is the actual narrative by which we should live, that someone's imprisonment for Christ might actually give another person confidence to speak that truth elsewhere. But that's what's going on, and Paul sees his own time in prison as an opportunity for the gospel to advance. Now, do we look at our own circumstances? Do I look at my own life and my own circumstances through the lens of the gospel? Because this isn't like some self-help thing that Paul is doing, which is basically, and which he will continue to do in the next few verses, of you just need to think differently about your circumstances. And you just need to like, if you just have like positive thinking and you just kind of like, you know, things will be better. You just kind of deny the reality of your life um, and it'll be fine. That's actually not what Paul is suggesting. What he's suggesting is, is a little bit more um, subversive, which is this, is that he actually sees his circumstances as reframed by the gospel and sees them as good. So he's not trying to convince himself to think differently about his circumstances. The, the, in light of the gospel, he actually sees his circumstances as benefiting the gospel. And so he finds joy in his circumstances. And I think about this text all week, and I'm like, I don't get that. <laughs> that, to me, seems so far from how I often approach life. I want often my circumstances to change instead of thinking about what might it mean to look at my circumstances in light of the gospel and of Christ being proclaimed. But this is the story that Paul himself is living by. But the second way that the the story of Jesus actually reframes Paul's experience of the world is in the way that he thinks of others. Now, I just want to read verses 15 through um, the 18, because I think he does something really fascinating to me, which is he sets us up as readers. Um, And so he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I mean, at this point, right, Paul sets up two different types of people. He sets up those who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and envy and rivalry. And then there are those who preach Christ out of love. And those who, who preach Christ out of selfish ambition and, and envy, Paul says, they do it to afflict him. And we're not entirely clear who these people are, but it doesn't seem like it's a good thing. And then the others preach Christ out of love. And it brings Paul a sense of, of joy and love. So I know at this point, oh, I know what you're going to do, Paul. Yeah, it's clear what you're going to say is, don't be like those people, but be like these people. Don't proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition or envy or anything like that, but preach Christ out of love. I totally get it. And then he says, well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul, I don't get, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't, you, you don't, I don't think you understand what you just did. Because uh, you confused a lot of us, right? But here's what's amazing about what he does in this text, which is, he sets us up to think, oh, we know what you're going to do. And he subverts it by saying, look, Christ is being proclaimed. The story of Jesus is being shared. And that means that the message actually transcends the messenger. That the message of Jesus is more compelling and beautiful and remarkable than the person who is proclaiming it. I mean, that's an incredible confidence and trust in the story of Christ. And I hope that in some ways it's liberating. Because so many of us find ourselves stuck in proclaiming the truth of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it because we're afraid of how it's going to come across. Or maybe we get afraid of, oh, like, what are my motives here? Or um, what, what, do I, what am I afraid of happening to me? But the message of Jesus actually transcends the messenger. But it also tells the truth about people. Paul doesn't say that doesn't make those people who are doing that less selfish or less envious. No, they're still, they're still bad people. They're still not ideal proclaimers of God's truth and the truth of Christ. So basically, don't be a jerk. But also the the story of Jesus is more beautiful and wonderful often than how we might proclaim it or how it comes across. This reminds me of a a film. Wow, you're getting two movie references today. You're welcome. Um, Reminds me of a film, The Apostle. And I don't know if you've seen this with Robert Duvall. In this movie, I, I love... I, I love this film, but it's, I love it because of, of, it, of it's actually really, it's sometimes hard to reconcile how I, how I feel about it when I'm watching it. So Robert Duvall plays this character of Sonny, um, and, and Sonny is this guy who finds out his wife is having an affair, and he actually puts 
um, the man with whom she's having an affair into a coma by hitting him with a baseball bat. And to evade getting caught and going into prison, he actually goes on the run. And while on the run, he finds himself in Louisiana, and, and he, he believes that, that, that God has given him this, this, this calling to start this church in this small Louisiana town. And so he actually does, and he goes, he goes into this radio um, station and, and kind of co-ops this hour, and he begins to speak, and he begins to preach, and, and he, he gets this retired reverend, and he convinces him that they need to start a church, and they do, and they start this, this, um, this church. I think it's called One Way Road to Heaven. And the thing about Sonny is you, I actually never, I, it's such an amazing film because he's so complex that at times I'm like, you are totally doing this for money because he sells things and, and people give him money but then there are other times I'm like but you also seem like you're really sincere about what you're saying and the people in this town totally believe that he's sincere I mean he's converting people there's this racist character um, played by Billy Bob Thornton who wants to tear this church down and and, and Sonny, or he becomes the Apostle E.F., actually stops him and prays for him. And this racist guy converts, and he becomes part of this church. Um, and what do you do with that? But then there's this one character named Sam in the story who's a friend of the Apostle E.F. And he doesn't ever, he never really converts, uh, but he's, he's there and he's helping because he finds in Sonny um, this father figure, uh, and and he, he's connected to him, and um, he's a faithful member, but he's kind of like kept at bay. Well, he actually finds out um, about what Sonny did. And at this point, I think the character um, whom he put in a coma dies. And so he finds out about his past. And in the last, in the last like 15 minutes of the film, in the last church service, Sonny is giving this sermon. And the police are outside, and, and they actually wait for him to conclude this church service. And Sonny is speaking and sharing the message of the gospel. Uh, and, and as he understands it, this, this, um, that, that there are people here, that's what he's saying, right? There are people here in this congregation that God is wanting to call, um, that God is, is wanting to, to ensure your salvation. And, um, and he uses some of these examples, and you see through the the stained glass in the back that there are, are police lights flashing through and, and you know what's coming for Sonny. But then you see Sam who's sitting in the front pew. And as, as Sonny is talking about this truth, and in this, every time I watch this movie, I get so emotional watching it. And it's, it's really hard to understand. But Sam is like overcome with emotion at what Sonny is, is sharing about the person of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And, and for him, uh, and, and Sam... Like, actually wants to give his life to Jesus. And, and so Sam stands up after this call that, that um, Sonny gives, and, and uh, Sonny prays for him, and, and he, becomes a, he becomes saved. And, and I think this doesn't make any sense to me. How is that? How can that happen with this man who has committed murder and who's going to be arrested for murder this, this man, Sam, knows what he's done and what's going to happen to him. 
And yet he's so overcome by the message of truth that he's hearing that he can't help but respond to it. And I think in the complexity of that scene, I actually understand some of what might be going on here, which is that, that the message of Jesus, the story of Christ, transcends what we're able to say about it. And that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't say anything. It actually means the opposite, that we should, we should try, that we should give it a shot. Because perhaps we might have the same trust and hope that Paul does. Which is, well, what do we say? Just that in every way Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. That's an amazing view of the story of Jesus that Paul has. And it's an amazing idea for Paul that the story can actually reframe his entire life and so that he sees his own experience and his own life through the gospel and that it's the gospel that's become the thing that makes sense of it. And here's the question then that I began with that I've been wrestling with that I offer to you is what what story makes sense of your life? What is the story that makes sense of your life? And can you answer this? Chances are you may not actually be able to. But some people around you might. And so this is the one thing that I was considering. Now, I haven't done it, so maybe I won't, because it's a risky endeavor. But I suggest to you is to ask other people who know you well, so what is the story that you think makes sense of my life? Just looking at my life and how you know me and what you know of me and the things I talk about and the things I care about, what would you say is the thing that makes sense of my life most? Now, if you were to look at your life kind of as a third person, what would you see? And how would you answer that question? Because the thing that Paul does in the book of Philippians and certainly here in this passage is show us how to have a life that is reframed by the gospel. How does to put on gospel lenses through which we see our circumstances, our desires, our wants, other people. And that is a main source of joy for Paul. Because once the gospel reframes our lives then we are actually living in reference to the true story of the world. Now, I was thinking about this for me. Now, if I was to think about my life, I'd say that perhaps some of the stories that I live by is, is that the goal in life or the desire, maybe, in life is personal fulfillment and satisfaction. Like, I want to feel fulfilled. Who doesn't, right? I want to feel fulfilled as a person in my career, in my friendships, in my family, that that, that might be one of the things that, that frames my life. Is this, going to, is this going to give me some sense of fulfillment? Is this going to give me some sense of satisfaction? Certainly, I think another thing that might frame, I might see my life through, is this idea of, of security, of feeling good, of feeling safe, 
Like, I want to live a long life, and I want my family and my children and my wife to live a long life. I mean, that's just me being honest. But that might be one of the, that might be a central story, right, that I'm kind of living my life through. Certainly security might play into the idea of of wanting and attaining some sort of of wealth or something to have to maybe make sure that we'll we'll be fine in the future. I mean, I don't know what it is for you. For some, actually one of the things that might frame your life, um, make sense of your life, is a past, maybe it's a past mistake. Maybe it's a past wound. And you can't actually make sense of your life any other way than that thing that you did. Or maybe it's one something that someone did to you. Maybe you can't make sense of your life um, unless you're a victim in it or of it. See, the thing about stories is that we can't help but live by them. And so which one are you living by? And sometimes the stories that we live by aren't completely untrue. They just don't tell the entire true, full story of the world, which is the story of God reconciling all things to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's actually begun now. And we're a part of it. And we'll continue until all things are made new. Like, that's our story. Like, I don't know what story you're living out of. But the good news this morning is that the true story of the world is the story of Jesus. And what God is doing through Jesus. And that we all have an opportunity to live in light of the story. If we profess to be followers of Jesus, we are actually caught up in that story. And that it isn't my story, and it's not your story, but it's actually God's story, and therefore our story together. And that's good news. That's good news because it's a story that's available to each and every one of us, a story that we can step into, a story that can reframe our entire lives, a story that is actually more beautiful and compelling than any other story that we might want to grasp and hold on to. Let's pray. Father, I confess that there are so many, so many times, I think, there are better stories than the one you're telling. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage, for reminding me, sharing with us that you and what you're doing and have done and will do through the person of Jesus is the thing that reframes all of it, all of this. Help me to be one who is humble enough to enter into that story and to be a part of it. Not as the main protagonist, but as a participant. And God, I thank you that that we have that gift that you give to us, that you draw us near to yourself. And I pray and I trust that there are many of us here 
who need to know that the story you're telling is more beautiful than the other ones we live by. So draw us to yourself. Help us to see the world as you see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.